Hello and welcome to The Spectator's Americano podcast, a special series of discussions about the biggest political event of this year, the 2016 US presidential election. My name's Freddie Gray and I'm deputy editor of The Spectator. I'm joined by Daniel McCarthy, who is uh, editor of The American Conservative. Um, and here we are, Donald Trump has this morning uh, gone to see Barack Obama. Um, and already uh, the whole atmosphere of American politics has changed. What do you think the next two, three weeks are going to be like, Dan? You know, Donald Trump will, on the one hand, have uh, a great many experienced Republicans to draw upon. And you already see this to some extent. Uh, we know that uh, Rudy Giuliani and uh, Chris Christie are very close to Trump. Uh, same with Jeff Sessions, the senator from Alabama. So it's not the case, as people have feared, that uh, Trump is coming in with uh, absolutely no uh, experience in government. He himself might not have been in government before, but he has a lot of um, human resources to draw upon. However, uh, Trump will also bring, I think, some new faces into government from the business world and from uh, other different sectors of American society. And I think there's a, a strong parallel here to what we saw with Ronald Reagan, where Reagan also uh, carried over some Nixon personnel, some Ford personnel, some uh, Republicans who were identified as being with the Eastern establishment. But he also brought in um, a lot of new people, a lot of people who had been with him as governor of California, and a lot of people who came from uh, sort of new sectors of American society. So right now, it's um, a bit all a question of staffing and how uh, Donald Trump himself will balance the old and the new. And uh, there's a lot of mystery around what actually the Trump campaign was and uh, who was calling the shots. Do you think it's going to become clear now uh, who made, I mean, for example, Mike Pence seems, seemed at the time like a bit of an odd vice presidential pick, but now it seems like rather an inspired one. Um, do you think it's going to become clear how he did it, who was making those decisions? And Well, fundamentally, Trump himself was making those decisions, and I think that's what makes him such a remarkable individual. Um, this I is think someone... everyone just assumes that uh, you know, he can't possibly, can't possibly be clever enough to have made a decision. Like but you know, it, it seems to be the case that he has, and that, um, I mean, the proof of this is that he was willing to fire uh, people like Corey Lewandowski, people like Paul Manafort. Um, <clears throat> And you basically had these advisors who would come in and give him advice that he didn't like. Mm. And, uh, and you've seen this with pollsters as well, people like Tony Fabrizio, that if Trump didn't think um, that his own views were aligning with those of his advisors, if he thought that an advisor had, um, you know, was failing him strategically, he would get rid of that person. And this is even though Trump himself had a high-risk strategy. Mm. Uh, Trump did any number of things which um, a conventional political strategist would say were suicidal. Um, so it took a lot of entrepreneurial vision, I think, on Trump's part to make that happen. Now, I do think, of course, um, Kellyanne Conway was able to implement Trump's vision for his campaign in a very effective way. And it's not the case that, you know, Trump wasn't listening to anyone, that he didn't have any advice, that he didn't have a menu of options created by his advisors um, as to sort of which path would implement uh, what he wanted to see his campaign do. But I really do think the man himself was responsible for so much of this. And let me say two more things on that uh, front. First of all, um, you know, when I talk to people within the campaign or who were volunteers closely associated with the campaign, they said the same thing. They said that um, this was not a conventional campaign with um, you know, a lot of different chiefs and generals and commanders that you could talk to, that really the key decisions were being made by Trump, for good or for ill. And of course, now we've seen that um, it was really for good, and it was basically uh, made for the most successful campaign any Republican has waged in quite some time. Yeah. Uh, the second point I would make is that um, you know, I've heard from people who have had some degree of communication with Pence, 
And their impression is, and I think it's a correct impression, that Pence has been won over by Trump. That Trump, for example, on uh, questions like trade, had a position that was very different from that of um, free trader Republicans. And that's what Trump had been, uh, that's, sorry, that's what uh, Mike Pence had been. It's what um, uh, Newt Gingrich had been, a Speaker of the House. And um, both Gingrich and Pence, both in public and I think in private, have testified to the idea that Trump has changed their thinking about these policies. So I think the president himself, um, the president-elect himself, I should say, has been the driver of his campaign and its ideas. And the question is whether, you know, with the much more difficult task of actually being president, uh, Trump will have the same degree of say over things. And if he does, I think he'll actually be much more successful than if he winds up having to defer to staff. And let's talk a little bit about the, the parties, because I think uh, the, the, the line that you know, I've been saying all this year is that the Republican Party, is, Trump has effectively destroyed the Republican Party because he's destroyed the, the elite of it. But uh, actually now, it looks like even though the, the, the elite that we knew has been defeated, the Republican Party is starting to look as though it could be in a very strong position. Or is it now going to be uh, no longer really a party, just responding to the leader? Oh, it is still very much a party, and what Trump has done is basically to reconnect the Republican Party with the American people. Yeah. So the Republican Party was becoming a party um, that was sort of dictated by elites and policy wonks, people who were highly educated but didn't have a sense of how the working man, the ordinary American, or the middle-class American really felt. And uh, that's one reason why the Republican Party over the last decade has been more successful at the state level than at the national level and with the presidential level. Uh, in the states, you, you saw that Republicans were actually very successful at electing governors, at taking control of state legislatures. That's because um, the Republicans at the state level had to be responsive to the people, mm. whereas Republicans at the national level were responsive to think tank wonks and uh, you know, sort of journalists who were very self-important but had no real connection to the voters of Wisconsin or Michigan. Uh, and Trump basically blew away that top level of the Republican Party, and he's replaced its brain, basically. The body was healthy, but the brain was sick. And now the brain is Trump's brain. And uh, Trump actually has a much stronger feel for the American public and its sensibilities than um, you know, someone like Mitt Romney, certainly. Yes. And a large part of Trump, uh, before the podcast we were just discussing, a large part of Trump's support is left in origin, and Michael Moore, the documentary maker, um, sort of understands Trump's support, even though he's a, a very sort of PC left-winger. Um, what, what happens to the Democrat Party now? What happens to the American left? I think if the uh, American left is intelligent, it will ditch its multiculturalism and ditch its sort of centrist, corporatist, neoliberalism and will instead embrace a program much more like that of Michael Moore or even Bernie Sanders. That it's going to, if, if I were the Democrats, I would look at what just happened and I would say, we lost Pennsylvania, we lost Wisconsin, we may have lost Michigan. These were states we should have won very handily. And we lost them because the Republicans made a more working class and middle class appeal than we did. And uh, we had always been counting on the Republicans as being at least as, if not more, out of touch than we were. And with Mitt Romney and John McCain and uh, you know, many other Republican leaders, that was the case. But now it's not the case. The Republicans have reconnected with the public. And um, the Democrats need to do so as well. They need to start thinking about the Rust Belt states. They need to think about American industry. They need to think less in terms of race and gender and much more in terms of class. Somebody said, and in fact has been said quite a lot, I think, in the last day, if it had been Sanders, he would have beaten Trump. Do you think that's true? No, I don't think it's true that Sanders would have beaten Trump. Um, I think Sanders, uh, you know, he was promoting a kind of Scandinavian uh, social democracy for America. I don't think the country as a whole is really um, eager to embrace that. And uh, it seems to me that Trump actually had more working class appeal. More, I mean, working class is kind of a metaphor here. I don't mean it in a literal sense, but I mean this um, 
the sort of Bruce Springsteen ethos, right? This idea of the rugged American, this idea of the honest working guy who wants to get a square break. Um, I think Trump connected with that, you know, despite his quite wealthy background, in a way that Bernie Sanders would have had a harder time doing. Um, nevertheless, I think Sanders, if you can connect the Sanders um, element of economic populism with a, a Democrat who has a bit more of a, a common man's touch, I think you'll have a very powerful force. And you don't think if Hillary Clinton had made uh, Bernie Sanders her vice president, that might have just flipped things enough the other way? Or No, on the contrary. I think that um, it would have discredited Sanders and would not have helped uh, Hillary Clinton at all. Um, Hillary, with uh, uh, Tim Kaine as her vice presidential pick, I mean, Kaine was from a, uh, you know, sort of a southern state from Virginia. He was someone who did seem to have um, a little bit more, I mean, he was, you know, a Roman Catholic, etc., uh, he was someone who seemed to have this uh, appeal to the American middle in a way that Clinton, as an elitist, kind of didn't. But we saw that um, Kane really did not do much for that ticket. And I think Sanders would have been more discredited than anything if he had uh, signed on. Um, so no, I don't think that would have helped. And you, you say that's the direction uh, the left will go and if it's smart, um, but do you think it's smart? No, I don't. I think, <laughs> I mean, what you're seeing right now, for example, these protests and maybe they're verging on riots in places like San Francisco and elsewhere, you've got this coastal elite uh, among the Democrats in, uh, you know, both on the East Coast and also in places like California, which really does not have any feel at all for how, you know, welders in Michigan or in Wisconsin or uh, in Pennsylvania, how they feel. And, um, you know, all of these, uh, you know, gender issues and all of this multiculturalism and all of this sort of um, left-wing piety, uh, none of that means anything to people who are working class and want to provide for their families. But it means a whole lot to, um, you know, this, uh, the financial class that supports many of the left-wing think tanks. I mean, it really is a case that we have this really inept uh, sort of new labor spirit among our mm. Democrats. And I don't think they're going to be able to reconnect with uh, the American working class. I think there's a sort of feeling here, just like after Brexit, and, and the comparison's been done to death, but it's a good one, that, you know, the, the, the clever people are just being stupid, and that the, 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 the elites in London, uh, the smartest people in the room, can't quite see what's happening. That's happened here too, hasn't it? It has happened here, and the question is whether the shock of Trump is going to be enough to uh, force them out of their navel-gazing, yeah. and force them to uh, reconnect with the public and with reality. Um, and maybe it will be. I mean, certainly the Trump shock is the biggest uh, shock in American politics that we've seen in a generation. Yeah. I think we're all struggling to go with the reality at the moment, aren't we? <laughs> well, you know, but it's, it's, it's fun and also, um, you know, there's a certain level of anxiety as well. There's a lot of things that can go wrong. But um, we have a new page now, a blank page. We can actually write a new story at this point. Whereas I think with um, Clinton, certainly with Jeb Bush... There was this sense that American politics was just a replay of things that had happened before. And the problem is, you know, I mean, I think the Clintons looked back at the 1990s and said, look at all this prosperity, look how happy people were, uh, don't we want to go back to that? But actually, I think the American public looked at the 1990s and said, the problem with the 1990s is that, is that they led to the 2000s. They led to uh, the Iraq War, they led to the Great Recession. And, um, you know, having had Barack Obama in office over the last eight years, hasn't really been able to uh, rec recover the prosperity of the 1990s. It's only kind of stanched the bleeding 
of the uh, 2000s. There's a sense that basically the political establishment, whether it's under Clinton or whether it's under a Bush, um, really was bankrupt and had run out of ideas and didn't have the interests of the American people in mind. And Trump has turned that around. He's basically put in, uh, like I say, it's a new page. But if Clinton was appealing to the 90s, Trump was appealing to the 80s and a sort of reheated Reaganism, right? No, I don't think so. I mean, what you'd seen for the last uh, 20 years is that each Republican, no matter how implausibly, um, claimed to be the successor to Reagan. Mm. Um, you know, Mitt Romney wanted to be the next Reagan. Uh, John McCain wanted to be the, the next Reagan. George W. Bush wanted to be the next Reagan. And Donald Trump, for better or for worse, has always been Donald Trump. Yeah. There's no question of Donald Trump standing in Ronald Reagan's shadow. That's true. Uh, one yeah. way or another. So he has actually, um, in a way, I think Reagan was a very great president. And I think Reagan was a great president uh, in many cases in ways where he defied um, orthodox movement conservative opinion. He was much more negotiating uh, in his uh, mindset towards uh, the Russians, for example, than many of these uh, you know, conservative magazines had, uh, had wanted him to be. Um, so Reagan was successful because he transcended mere politics and mere um, sort of movement conservative checklist politics. And I think Trump uh, has done the same thing. And basically Reagan became um, a stereotype, a caricature. And the idea of Reagan that someone like Mitt Romney was trying to live up to wasn't the real Reagan. The real Reagan was something much better. And so Trump, even though in the one, one sense he is the first to transcend Reagan and go beyond Reagan and be post-Reagan, um, but he is like Reagan in the sense that he, again, is um, creating a new element in uh, conservative politics in America. Uh, and I think that is what has revived the Republican Party. And what uh, appointments as we, in the next few weeks, and, and we'll, we'll, we'll get a sense of who the appointments are likely to be, I hope, or I think, uh, what appointments will alarm you? What possible appointments would really alarm you? Which, which possible appointments would, would make you think this is going in the right direction? That's a very good question. You know, we have a foreign policy conference that's coming up in about, uh, well, less than a week now, uh, on Tuesday of next week as we record this podcast. Mm. That's uh, November 15th. So, um, And uh, one of the speakers at our conference is uh, James Webb, who had been uh, Reagan's Secretary of the Navy and who had been a Democratic senator from Virginia. And he ran against um, uh, Hillary Clinton for the Democratic nomination this year. Uh, someone like James Webb, if he were appointed, I would be very encouraged because Webb has a great sense of the American public, the working class, the middle class. Um, he's a military man. He's someone who's no-nonsense. Um, but the reason he ran as a Democrat for the Senate in 2006 and won was because he was appalled by the war in Iraq that uh, George W. Bush had launched. I think Trump has an opportunity here to put people in his uh, cabinet and administration who are not simply Republican time servers, people who have um, you know, experience in a number of fields, whether it's business, whether it's the military, who, um, who like Trump himself, should not be simply um, partisan hacks, but should be people who um, bring new experience and new vitality to American politics. What would alarm me is seeing the reappointment of a lot of George W. Bush administration people and the appointment of a lot of sort of uh, standard issue Republicans, the kind of people who might have served in the Mitt Romney administration. So the more difference I see from the Romney administration, the more happy I will be. Now there are, um, you know, um, I think Rudy Giuliani was a very good mayor of New York. I think Mary, Mayor Giuliani would have been a terrible president of the United States. So the question is, if Giuliani becomes a member of um, Trump's cabinet, whether we see the beneficial parts of Giuliani or the negative ones. And that's, you know, it's an open question. And uh, I think we'll see a lot of... Because um, I find that, you know, you look at Giuliani, you look at Christie, and you think charlatans. 
Well, but it's also this geographic thing. I think Giuliani and uh, Christie both have this uh, East Coast, you know, sort of New York, New Jersey sensibility, yeah. this no-nonsense sensibility, which Trump has as well. So I can see why that happens. I am rather hopeful about um, Senator Jeff Sessions, who might be in line to become Secretary of Defense. Uh, Sessions is not an ideological neocon. He's not someone who wants to transform the globe, uh, you know, uh, based on an ideological program. Mm. He's a pragmatic Southerner. He's conservative. Um, he's not a dove. He's someone who actually, you know, thinks that there is a place for force in our foreign policy, of course. But he is someone who really would not um, ha sign on to new uh, crusades in the Middle East. He's someone who would be very focused on uh, results as opposed to utopian schemes. Yeah. And finally, just I'd like to ask you sort of a, a psychological question, maybe, is that you wrote a very brilliant piece in The Spectator. It's called The Intelligent Case for Trump. And in that piece, you talked about how difficult it, it was, you know, you, it's taking a great risk with your, with your sort of reputation and things because people would, were so horrified by the idea. Um, how are you feeling now, now that you were one of a small group of, um, can we say, uh, people who really thought about it and decided... Uh, that actually Trump was a, was the right choice. Well, you know, I didn't feel so much uh, pressure myself. I've always been contrarian enough that um, I was quite happy to be even on the losing side, even on a losing side that might have been, uh, you know, sort of condemned and uh, shunned. Uh, you know, and that was certainly the case back in 2003 when I was one of the very few conservatives who was strongly opposed to George W. Bush's Iraq War. Um, and basically, I mean, I see this as uh, an ongoing vindication of many of the views that I've had since the 2000s when I was a big fan of uh, Pat Buchanan. Um, so I personally wasn't exposed to that kind of pressure so much, but uh, I knew that very many others were. And I had people, you know, tell me about um, some of the professional um, pressure that was put on them not to be supporters of Trump. And I heard from, you know, sort of friends of friends who, you know, uh, had a lot of fr uh, people who, who could not voice their support for this candidate precisely because, um, you know, they had, they would, you know, they would lose customers, they would lose their jobs. Um, so... At this point, I think um, now the political establishment, the, the people who would have been firing um, you know, intellectuals, journalists, academics who had supported Trump, now have to stop and reflect. They have to think, wait a minute, this country is someplace different than we thought it was, and we have to, um, maybe we have to be more open, maybe we have to actually welcome into our ranks and have some representation for um, this perspective. And it doesn't mean that I expect, you know, American universities or American newspapers to suddenly become much more uh, populist and right-wing and conservative. But I do think they're going to have to say that um, we can't just have right neoliberals and left neoliberals on our editorial pages. We actually do need to have some sense of both the Bernie Sanders left and also the uh, Donald Trump right. And, and can you, I imagine quite a few of our listeners will uh, think that, um, like a lot of Americans too, that, uh, you know, America succumbed to racism and fascism and so on. Um, what would you say about the fascism allegation? Well, it's complete crap, isn't it? Um, <laughs> you know, Donald Trump, fascists, you know, first of all, they relied on, on black shirts, they relied on brown shirts. Uh, there has not been more violence associated with Trump than there has been with, uh, you know, some of the movements on the left. And I don't say that because I think the left movements have been extremely violent. They have not. They're not fascist either. So uh, some of this is just this inability to accept that there can be serious policy differences on questions like trade, on questions like war, on questions like immigration in particular, uh, that don't translate into, you know, this kind of 
idiotic, uh, you know, sort of 1939 mentality that you can have differences on the meaning of the nation state and you can affirm the importance of citizenship over um, illegal aliens, for example, without uh, being a bigot, without being a xenophobe and certainly without being a fascist. Yes. Thanks very much, Dan. That's very, very interesting. Thank you, Freddie.